give us songs for the morning sun as it was pouring from your mouth. You gave us a lifetime of blessing, a long time of resting in your house. You give us all that Hello listeners, welcome to season two of Create in Me with Rebecca Craver and Brian Dixon. Thank you for tuning in. And we're glad you've joined us for this conversation about the connections between worship and everyday life. Yeah, actually, I was looking at Ezra uh, chapter three, and as they're they're getting the the second temple completed, and then there's this kind of the older priests and the Levites and heads of families who had seen the first house wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this house although many others shouted loudly with joy. Mm-hmm. No one could distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping because the people rejoice very loudly. Uh, a, a, an interesting reaction you know, mm-hmm. to um, a group of people who are seeing the foundations of something new and lamenting you know, everything that maybe it isn't, uh, lamenting, I guess, the gap between their, their expectations, their memory, and the, and the possibilities presented by this new thing. And at the same time, you have a group of people who are, they're rejoicing so loudly, they're shouting so loudly that you, you have this cacophony. And they're excited. They're excited about the, the restoration of worship and the continuation of, of, of that theology and that that. that that liturgy and they're pretty, they're pretty stoked. <laughs> and so it's interesting. I, and I don't know, I, I just feel like there's instances like that where I feel like the church and I feel like the, I, I feel the communities that we are connected to reaching, you know, reaching to hold on to uh, some things that are, that are constant, that are familiar and and I feel also kind of a, a, an excitement about new things and possibilities. And so, yeah, the story of the exile, the story of the second temple, you know, in recent weeks, we've heard stories of uh, the disciples sequestered, quarantined in the upper room, or Jesus telling Mary uh, to practice physical distancing, not to touch him, or or Jesus telling Thomas not to worry about that and to get get up in there and, and say, hey, check, check, look at, look what's going on. It just seems like such a time. How is it that we make use of the, our stories, you know, in ways that are, that are helpful, that are meaningful, that are not, you know, co-opting or appropriating, but that are authentically, you know, this is a way that we understand I mean, as you and I have talked about before, right, the way that we make sense, the way that we make meaning through our worship and through our preaching, it just feels to me like this is a time where there's some new, maybe some new stories, some new, I guess, sides of stories that we might be ready to take a closer look at. So reading from Ezra, uh, chapter 3, picking up at verse 10, this is from a common English Bible. When the builders laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests 
clothed in their vests and carrying their trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, arose to praise the Lord according to the directions of Israel's King David. They praised and gave thanks to the Lord, singing responsively, He is good. His graciousness for Israel lasts forever. All of the people shouted with praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and heads of families who had seen the first house wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this house, although many others shouted loudly with joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping because the people rejoiced very loudly. The sound was heard at a great distance. So this, I don't know, Rebecca, this passage from Ezra, we were talking a little bit about it. The scene there is of a, kind of a groundbreaking ceremony, of a foundation being laid for the second temple, and very mixed reactions. You know, people, uh, some are thrilled, are, are jubilant uh, about the continuation of the practice and the, and the ritual, the liturgy of the church, and, and others are just devastated at with a, by a sense of loss and diminishment, you know, that the, the, the new temple isn't what, what the old temple was. And there's a real grief. And it, it, it's occurred to me, and, and we've had conversation about this in, in recent weeks, is, is these stories, um, and maybe new stories, that the church hasn't often looked to for guidance for a sense of, of insight and, and guidance. In light of the pandemic, it's, I'm wondering if there's new stories or new ways we, we might hear old stories. And, and this one in particular from Ezra, uh, a lot of people are experiencing worship in a lot of different ways. You know, the whole concept of a digital cathedral. And I, I feel like I'm hearing, you know, kind of not mixed reviews, but some people you know, are finding it that it's very accessible, it's very inviting and engaging, uh, it's very present, it's, it's highly connected, highly networked. And I, I do feel like I'm, I'm also hearing from some who, who feel a little left out by it or just aren't as up to speed on the technology or um, have such a strong association with, you know, the, the physicality of a sanctuary uh, a house of worship, you know, the architecture, the, the, vet, the, de- the decor, the woodwork or glass. And, and, and I don't want to kind of lose that sense. But again, I, I, there's a story right out of the scriptures where, you know, kind of the world turns, life moves on, uh, God's people adapt and and, and uh, persevere, right? There is grief with that as, as we adopt or, or adapt to new, to new models, to new expressions, to new circumstances. So I, I, don't know, I was just curious about the bigger question around all that, about maybe some of the new stories that we take uh, another look at during, this, during the pandemic. I think it's also interesting to think about the other voices that we take our lead from um, because I think, you know, you said like the church hasn't, hasn't used these stories. Um, and I would, I would kind of make a caveat to say that I think, um, you know, like the white Protestant church hasn't used these stories. Yeah. Um, 
But the story of exile is a story that historically you can see being used among slaves in the American colonies um, and in the American South specifically, uh, you know, but that, that those stories um, spoke to, to those people and, and gave them strength to, to kind of push against their oppression, the oppression of their people. Um, and, 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 and it still, I think is a significant kind of cornerstone, you know, the African Episcopal church um, and some of the, you know, some Baptist churches, you know, that churches that are, are African-American led, I think have a real sense of these stories and what they have to say to us. Are we listening to their wisdom because they have been living with these stories for so long um, in a way that I personally have not. Exile is forced upon you. Like some, some people do choose to exile themselves for different reasons, but I think that the exile in Israel, it is not something that the Israelites said, well, we're all just going to move to this other place. It happened and they were moved by the occupying power. And I think that that's what this pandemic is doing um, to us and to our churches. Nobody asked us if we were willing to be moved or to be changed. Mm. It just has happened. And I think that that um, that's what, where the opportunity is and where the, and where the disruption is felt. um, I think most viscerally is that like, we have no control over, over this. And I think we see that happening um, and people's varying responses to that loss of control certainly throughout all of North America, um, you know, we see people that have very different thoughts about um, how we should be responding and about what this loss feels like about, you know, what, what it is worth to return to normal or not. You know, Mm -hmm. like I've seen a lot of people on Facebook talking about like, can I use this time to determine what I really want my life to be like? Can I see this as an opportunity to have some time to reflect on what kinds of things I want to build back in to my new normal. And I think that that's where exile kind of gets to us. Cause I think sometimes I think about exile and it's like all about the being pushed out. But I think that we don't always think about the generative nature of exile. Like that, that while we are pushed out and we lose the things that we love, we also are given permission to lose the things that were not life giving to us. And so I wonder if that isn't part of the question for the church to say, like, what about this time is allowing us to let go of things in our communities, in our practices that have ceased to to inform our practice of faith in the way they once did. Um, And not in a way that says, like, they're bad or useless, but to say, so we're going to put that to the side. Yeah. We're going to really dig deep into these things that are bringing life, are filling us up um, because that's what we need. You know, like I, I don't hear people saying like, oh, I'm just uh, I want to hear the best hymn with the most perfect singing. People are just longing to sing together. Right. Like they're not it's not about the kind of the entertainment value, but it's it's we're really feeling the loss of community. And of, and of the kind of the places where community was felt and seen by us and in, in Christian churches, um, 
one of those main things is the, you know, the weekly gathering of worship. And that's so important for people, which I think is also why there are so many mixed reactions because it's, it's not the same. And uh, I know some people are kind of leading worship digitally in much the same format that they were leading it in person. Mm-hmm. And for some people that's really helpful because that is the similar rhythm, but for other people, they feel like that's strange. Like it doesn't fit. And so they'd rather it be totally different because it's in a totally different medium. And then, and that's causes for a different kind of um, pastoral responses to like, what is the best decision we make as worship leaders for the congregations and the parishes that we serve? I, I think your point is really well taken about the, that maybe exile uh, is, is a new experience for some of us, you know, or that experience mm-hmm. of, I mean, it definitely kind of brings to the forefront uh, a great deal of privilege and, and whether that's, you know, social, economically, race and gender, like, yeah, I, I feel like this is really calling to the forefront. Like, yeah, if, if you are at leisure, you know, to be able to do the work that you do in a, in a remote capacity uh, without any kind of impact in terms of, of income or just your, your, your living, your housing environment, that's, that's a great blessing. And that is, that is a great privilege. I think we're also seeing the experience of, of folks who are, you know, are really keeping things running in terms of bus schedules and grocery stores and, and delivery and, and not to mention just the healthcare industry, doctors and nurses. And um, yeah, I think there's been kind of like this, maybe an inversion, but a, a sense of, you know, I think I saw some, well, I don't know if it's actually true that a roll of toilet paper, you know, costs more than a barrel of oil. Like there's so many of these different kinds of reversals, which the scriptures speak to over and over again. Um, so, so I, yeah, I think it, it's important not to lose that and that there is a lot of wisdom um, from our sisters and brothers in the faith who can kind of, you know, raise their eyebrows and say lovingly to us, yeah, that's, that's a thing and, and kind of welcome to a little bit of that experience. And so I think to be humble, to accept that, I think that the Moravian, um, the Moravian history has in it you know, from the, the 1457, you know, on into the 1500s, the 1600s, you know, until the time they ended up on the doorstep of Count Zinzendorf, I do think had a, a, a sense, a history of, of kind of being a church on the run, a church that did know exile, you know, in a very real sense, not in an abstract or poetic sense. Um, and it's interesting to me that, that the Moravian church kind of came through that pretty lean. You know what I mean? It, it, it really, and the things that have come to, to, to my sense to mean, you know, what it is to be Moravian, they're not so much kind of the, the, the top heavy doctrinal, they're, they're the singing and the prayers and the missiology. And, and those are all the connective tissue of the church. Those are the, you know, all the things that it seems to me like the Moravians kind of went all in on are all of the things that have everything to do with connection and community, like singing together, praying for each other, mission with and among one another, 
uh, and the spirit, like that's, that's a little bit of a light bulb as I'm kind of sitting here, like the things that, that it seemed like the, the Moravian church really focused and placed emphasis on maybe could be seen as a response to the experience of exile and a real premium being placed on connection, relatedness, community, and, and, and everything that could be done in faith to kind of preserve those bonds, to foster that. Um, and I don't know if this is a time Again, for us, to, like you said, to, to look to the wisdom of others who have, have, have really lived this experience and, and understand some of those Bible stories from the inside. And, and also maybe even as Moravians to our own history of being a church of immigrants and refugees, you know, being a church of a persecuted minority that, that really had to be very lean and had to make decisions about you know, what, what it was going to be possible to carry forward. Like you can't lug a lot with you if you are, if you're a refugee, you, you, you travel light. And, and I wonder if our, our theology kind of correspondingly in our practice has been a bit of a practice of traveling light. And, and are we again at a time of paring things down to the essentials as we're fond of, of talking about, you know, the essentials of our, of our community. Oh God, I hope so. <laughs> Grew up in the Moravian church. So that, uh, wasn't what first drew me in. Um, but I think as I grew up and began to learn more about where we had come from, that, that story of those exiles from Prague, um, you know, the hidden seed that, that lived and moved in, um, in those hundred years of kind of a quiet, existence away from, you know, kind of quote unquote, the world, you know, they, this, they just were sectarian and pulled away um, because that was how they figured out how to be um, and how to follow Jesus in the way that they felt called to do that. And, and then even coming into Germany and on the land of Count Zizendorf, like, I think what enabled this massive um, missionary movement and this zeal for spreading the gospel. Um, I think it, it, it wasn't that, I mean, the spirit was certainly a part of that, but I think they were uniquely positioned to receive that spirit and to answer it because they were exiles, because they had already learned that they could live with their faith away from all of the, all of the things that made them who they were, that they had learned that who they were, their identity in Christ superseded the identity that they had in the place where they were born and the families that they grew up in. And that's why these people were able to say, because of Jesus, I'm going to get on this boat and I'm going to leave this place that I have always known never to return. But I'm trusting that because of our faith that we share together, we will have what we need to proclaim the gospel and to serve the people that God sends us to comes up so often in my ministry. And I have thought about like, if only there were a way for us to be able to claim that, that energy and that urgency for response to the gospel. Um, because I look at my experience in the North American church is that we do a lot of really wonderful and amazing things 
but we are very tied to them. And I don't know how light we are able to travel. Mm-hmm. That has been my struggle is like, how, how do you kind of claim some of this um, exilic identity without being made to do it? You know, like it's just, cause it's just hard. Like, I mean, even in my own life, like to, you know, to go through the things in your home and to really pare down things that you have is hard. Yeah. It's not because like, I don't want to have less, you know, like we have two little kids and we are, are really working hard on like, let's not have so many toys that they can't even play with them all. Let's not do this. And it is like so hard (laughs) to do that. And it's not, and we're not buying them toys all the time, but still, you know, if they get a toy from each grandparent and each aunt and uncle, that's four toys and five, if we give them something and then, you know, like, and then the, the three other people in our lives that give it, that's like eight toys for a birthday or for Christmas, you know, and it's just like, yeah, everything gets, gets passed along. And as you said, when you're a refugee, you just can't carry all of that. And I think that that is the gift in this crisis is to say, like, in order to be able to respond to the world as it is, we have to travel light. And so how do we determine and discern what are the things that we're going to carry with us? I also wonder, like, what kind of courage will it take for me to be able to really look at myself? with the critical eye, I think that I would need to be able to see what I needed to leave behind in order to be able to respond to this new world that's coming. It's a funny thing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I serve a church that's almost, what, 275 years old, and I feel like we're operating like a pirate radio station, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, we're doing a couple of, uh, you know, a Facebook live stream with our student pastor on Tuesdays. I, I try to put together a, a post for Thursdays that gets shared on the Facebook page. Um, we have, uh, you know, weekday morning prayer via Zoom. And yeah, like I said, it just feels like a little, and, and that is not in any way to, to try to co-opt or appropriate the experience of an actual underground church that is, that is harassed, that is persecuted, that actually does what it does at great risk, you know, at actual risk of incarceration, harassment. So, I mean, again, it's, it's kind of that privilege. Like we, there really aren't any, and and there's no barriers to generally to the North American church to, to evangelize, to, to witness, to, to share, you know, and, and seek to communicate its sense of, the gospel of Jesus Christ or, or any other gospel for that matter, right? Any, any religious organization. But I think for us in particular, as, as a Christian church, as a denomination, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. So, you know, a large historic church with a lot of inherited structure um, to be operating in, in, in a way that I think to many of the leadership on my boards and, 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 I think we just, there, there's this dissonance, you know, there, there's a dissonance between the way we're having to try to figure out how to do things in a more improvisational and spontaneous kind of way. Again, as opposed to the way it's probably been done for decades, for scores of years, maybe a hundred years or more, you know? And so that's, 
that just feels there's a dissonance to that, that to me, I guess I would be one of the people at the establishment of the new temple cheering again at the possibility, the continuity, the, the potential, the promise, the hopefulness of it. But I, again, I, I understand people for whom this is very disorienting and, and I think pastorally, it, 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 it matters a great deal to me that there are people who, who aren't really either for reasons of technology or, or interest or energy are like, I, I can't figure out Zoom. I, I don't have Wi-Fi. I, I'm not really up on any kind of device that can do this. I have a flip phone. You know, it's, I, I, don't, want, I don't want those people to be moved past or over you know, I, I'm mm-hmm. wondering how do we hold and um, and even again, whether it's different kinds of analog solutions, you know, the old phone trees, you know, good old fashioned church newsletter. Um, and then what does worship look like in these contexts where where we're, you know, we're, we're limited, we're restricted. If things like funerals, you know, mm-hmm. that, that are that are coming up and um how do we observe, how, how do we practice our, our liturgy and ritual, which is so full of meaning and memory? Yeah, I mean, these are really not even just rhetorical questions. I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, we're trying to kind of, and I, I, that's, I just, that, that feeling of, is this what it feels like to, you know, to be closer to that margin, mm-hmm. to, to be in a, in a sense of exile, and then how to, how to let that work on you a little bit and, and to humble you and to, and to, again, give you a sense of appreciation for the gifts and, and the way that God travels through those spaces with you and not just us, right. But anybody in any kind of marginal situation to kind of have that light bulb, like that is where God is, that God is a God of the margins. God is a God of the outcast and the, the underdog and, 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 and the suffering and the sorrowful and, and to kind of have maybe repent of ways in which we've tried to insulate ourselves, you know, from discomfort, from, from disorientation, from, I don't know, like, have we actually tried to insulate ourselves and gotten so comfortable that is there, has there been the room for God in that space that they're always ought to have been, you know, is, is that, is that a thing that maybe we're waking up to in a new way? Well, and I wondered just about all the different reactions, like Mm -hmm. is, is the exile story, is that a story that can, that can bring us from all our different perspectives into one conversation? You know, not, not about like, well, how are we doing worship? How are we connecting? Not about the logistics, but to say that to see and be seen, right? Like, like if there are people in our congregations who are feeling really disconnected from all of this technology for whatever reason, um, but they, they, they read the story and they say, oh, hey, yeah, I'm not, I'm not cheering for this new temple because that means that this is gone and this is gone. And it's hard for me, um, you know, to hear on the telephone, if I call into a zoom meeting and I don't have a computer, mm-hmm. it's hard for me to feel connected like that. 
that some of the work of of the exile story for me is is bringing like uncovering um as you were talking earlier i kept thinking about it's it's uncovering things for us that we haven't been paying attention to because we haven't needed to yeah and and i think that because i i wonder if some of the people who are feeling disconnected haven't already been feeling disconnected Mm. Um, because things are changing and they're, and they're not able to, or willing to kind of move along with those changes, but they haven't had room or place or the impetus to bring that up. Um, there's a book that I read once called who stole my church, Mm. which is this pastor's kind of imaginary story of, of people in a congregation who are dealing with change um, and they have this this weekly conversation about it, and uh, it's just really interesting. So it's based it's based on his true life experience in churches, um, but it's not it's not a real it's not a real situation that he's like writing a verbatim about. Um, but I think that there that is constantly happening, and I think that what exile does is it just it brings us to a place where it is harder to ignore the things than it is to just talk about them and, and deal with them and bring them to the light and, and see what we can make of them. I also am cognizant that like our worship is, is also not just about the existing community, but it's about those who are searching for something. You know, when we, when we worship in a worship service in a congregation um, and maybe to varying degrees, but we are prepared for somebody that we've never met to come through the door. And I wonder in this time of exile, how is that happening and how could it happen that is different than before? My concern about exile is that it is so exhausting. Like just living in a world that is so changed so quickly, it's, it's just exhausting. I mean, I know so many people, myself included, I am just more tired at the end of the day than seems reasonable for the things I have produced. But at the same time, like we're bearing a burden that is kind of covers everything. And so as I think about myself and and other colleagues and other worship leaders, like as we look at the world, it's hard to be creative when you're tired, but this time is calling us to be creative exile story also has something to teach us about that like what are the what are the mechanisms of community even in exile that are are able to fill us and so i know um one of one of our colleagues uh is working currently in an anglican church in a lutheran parish um and she offered a, a godly play video and so godly play is a a curriculum for children but not exclusively, but it's a way to tell stories in kind of a Montessori way. There's, you know, there are figurines and, and, and you move them around in the story you talk about. It. And she shared the story of the exile um, because the way of godly play is you kind of tell the story and, and you ask questions of the story. You know, mm-hmm. I wonder what, what people were thinking as they, as they left Jerusalem. I wonder if some people, you know, 
were in Babylon and chose to stay. Hmm. I wonder if the sadness was about what they were leaving or who they were leaving, you know, like that, but you ask questions of wonder. And I think that that's what the time of exile can offer to us is to ask questions. Say, I wonder what it would be like if we did this. And it begins to, I think, shape our imagination around how the spirit is leading us um, to come, to come through and, and out from this time. And what does it look like to shape worship around asking those questions and holding them? Um, Cause it's not always about like, well, we're going to have a worship service and we're going to figure out the answer to this, but to say like, I wonder, and to sort of let that move us forward little by little um, as we consider not just the congregations that we were before in terms of the people that were there, but also the congregations that, that we will become because of the people that we're able to serve and to connect to in this time. It's different. Yeah. That, I feel like there's very little that I feel I'm doing these days that I have kind of a, a template or, or a default setting or, you know, like when a carpenter is wanting to cut several of the same, you know, shapes uh, that you can design. I don't know if it's called a jig or there's some kind of a thing where you can put several pieces in and you cut them all at once and they've all got the exact same angle. I, I think we, we learn a lot of efficiencies and shortcuts maybe to the work we do to, to be able to get the work. I, I think to the, the fatigue piece you speak of, yeah, like every, it feels like we're reinventing the wheel like every day, every mm-hmm. kind of pastoral situation, uh, administrative situation, even liturgical solutions, everything we're kind of making it up from scratch and it's exhausting. And, but at the same time, there's something to it that it gives us this hard reset and, and we can kind of examine some of our assumptions examine some of the maybe the inherited structures and, and forms. And, and if we're taking the time and making the effort to kind of rethink it, then, then yeah, do that as best as we can. And with, with all the faithfulness and, and, and prayer and help and hope that we can muster. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. Not that to challenge everything kind of a thing, but we're, we're having to, because not everything still works the way it worked two months ago. You know, some things maybe, some things maybe they do. But one of the things you were talking that really kind of popped for me was the, the question of hospitality. Like, what does hospitality mean if you are in exile? Because mm. you, know, you would think that hospitality was predicated upon, I have a home, I have a hearth, I, I can offer you food, I can a place to sleep, a place to stay, a place to, to rest from your travels. But what if you're also on your travels? So what is, how do exiles administer hospitality to each other? You know, how do we, how do mm. we travel together? That, that's kind of an interesting question, you know, that I've been sitting with. And, and what does our liturgy have to do with hospitality to kind of creating these spaces of, of rest and nourishment, um, places where those questions can be gathered and, and held and honored 
and, and where, where there is assistance and encouragement and, and guidance and correction. Um, you know, if somebody's on the road and, and you see that they're, Hey, that's the bridge is out. <laughs> let me, let me give you directions. So it's not always in a, a directive or, um, paternalistic kind of, I mean, sometimes it is a good thing to offer correction, you know, and, and even, even in a difficult time when, when, when what you might feel was most helpful would be a more of that comfort, comfort, my people kind of message, um, you know, looking at the epistle lessons, uh, first Peter, you know, there, there's some interesting and, uh, and challenging stuff in there. The other thing that kind of pops is, is that so many of the epistles are, well, they are that. They are correspondence from somebody who is not present to you, writing to you from somewhere else, you know, about something that they feel concerns you or that concerns them about you. Like the bulk of our New Testament is, is these kinds of documents that are literally have to do with physical distance, you know, greetings and salutations. Um, uh, I'm, I'm inquiring after you, how are things going? Or I hear things and I want to offer you some encouragement or some counsel. There is definitely a distance, a separation that is explicit in the, in the epistles. And that, those, that seems to be kind of popping for me these days too. Like just realizing at face value, the distance at which the epistles were written you know, from recipient to sender, that there is, there is a kind of a, a space there. And, and how is it that that space has always been filled? We believe, you know, through the activity, the work of the Holy Spirit, that even across the miles, uh, those, those gaps are closed, you know, that those bridges are open, that, that, that there is a continuity, there is a connection between exiles and and, and travelers and strangers and, and friends who are, who are, are apart. That just makes me, I'm just curious. I'm like, what would it be like if, uh, if we wrote letters to other congregations mm. and maybe not, maybe not us as pastors, but maybe encourage, like, what would that look like to, you know, cause I'm just imagining like if I could say to like my congregation on this like zoom worship that we're doing, to be like, Hey, here's a letter from somebody in a church in Ohio mm-hmm. who just wants you to know that you're being thought of um, in their prayers today. And here's, you know, and like what, cause I, I do think that sometimes we get so busy that we don't think about um, those little things that can really bolster up um, people and communities. You know, I thank you know, for who you are, not for something that you have done. Mm can do wonders. You know, I've seen it. Yeah. Like I've, I've felt it myself, you know, just this random thank you note. It seems like they come at exactly the right time whenever I need to hear, hear from that. Yeah. Then I need to hear that, that this is, that I'm seen and appreciated. Um, hmm. I mean, so that in terms of liturgical planning, like what would that look like, you know, to make space for letters? to make space for words of encouragement. And again, yeah. not to make more work for uh, myself or our colleagues um, or even our laity who are dealing with, you know, like losses of jobs and loss of income 
and loss of, of family members. I mean, like there's so much that I also, I also think that exile, I think part of the reason why you pair back in exile is because you just can't. Yeah. Like you cannot maintain all of the same systems because you can't like, it's just, there's too much. And I, and I wonder if there isn't a way to um, shape our liturgy and almost to give permission for people to acknowledge that like, you know what, if you just can't, that's okay. If, you know, if today, if this week, if this month you can manage to get through the day and that's what you can do. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, to borrow from Rachel Marie, you know, it's okay to not be okay. Mm-hmm. How do you bring those elements into, into worship, into liturgy in a way that is not um, directive saying that like, well, you shouldn't be okay. You know, like, cause I mean, you also don't want people that feel all right right now to feel like you're just not attending to the world if you don't feel badly right now, but you know, to give people room. And I think, you know, it's maybe it's even more important right now that liturgy is about making space and creating spaces where people can, can experience their life in conversation with the story of the people of God and in conversation with one another about, about the story that is being written in us and with us right now. And I don't know that that has to be so stru- You know, I, I think sometimes liturgy feels like, oh, it's got to be very structured. And I actually don't think that in this time, it actually can be a little more fluid intentionally so that people are able to sort of make it what they need it to be. And letting worship kind of unfold in, in ways, because it does feel like a very organic thing. It is a relationship, I think, between God and God's people. Mm-hmm. Like that to me is what, what worship, what liturgy really, really is at the heart of it. And so that isn't so much a, a form or a, I think some mm-hmm. of the things still hold true though. I think even though worship is kind of evolving rapidly and we're trying to find new ways to do it, it's still about relationship and, and connection, connections between people and then connecting people together, helping people to understand, to sense, to feel, to celebrate the ways that they, that we are connected together to God in Christ. That's, I don't think that's changed at all, whether you're using Zoom or, or a face, you know, a live stream. Worship has always been the technology. Like mm. I think that, you know, mm. it's the means by which we communicate. Yeah. Um, which, you know, Zoom is the means by which we are communicating right now um, for a lot of us who are live streaming or, you know, the digital kind of medium. And I know we talked about that uh, with John and Elise, you know, like that this is just a new, a new place where we gather and, and, and what does that place offer us and what does it change about our normal rhythms? Cause I do think Mm -hmm. that there is something about the faith that is, you know, like Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but our experiences change, you know, but that God is, God is there stable and secure in the midst of everything that happens. Sometimes, like, I wonder, is that, are we kept from being, like, kind of clinging to God because um, we have all these other stable things that we hold on to? You know, like, is this, a, is this an opportunity to sort of bring ourselves back closer to, to God, who is the real stabilizing um, 
center of our world and of our faith. And maybe our lives are a little less siloed, less compartmentalized. At the same time that we're even more siloed, we're literally siloed. We're, it's like a cloistered walk. Somebody I was talking to uh, last night said it's like we're, we're kind of in this monastic community in these cells. We're in, we're in are these monasteries of our own residences. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not sure how I feel about that analogy, but it's like, yeah, we are kind of cloistered in some ways. But I think the tradition of of the monastic movement is that, the, you know, the Carmelites and such have been absolutely ardent in prayer for the needs of the world, the whole world. And so, yeah, even being limited geographically or to a specific, you know, building house or Abbey in no way limited your, your spiritual fellowship and, and your daily, again, I, I don't know if, if that's a workable kind of analogy for us uh, who aren't, you know, monastics, but in some ways, yeah, there too is a bit of an experience and a story that maybe there's something for us to learn from. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at Create and Me Worship and on Facebook at Create and Me. If you have questions, thoughts, or ideas you'd like to share with us, email us at moraviancreateandme at gmail.com. A special thanks to David Melby Gibbons, Rachel Marie, and John Robinson for our theme music. Check them out at Dust of the Saints on Facebook and rachelmarie.com. As always, keep on creating.